you fall into a house without a wall And only the size of your breath are heard I'm not one to go to church But you made me believe in something more than hurt I feel like I don't have the words I feel like I don't have the words Because I can't speak Am I so naive? I feel like I don't have the words Because I can't speak Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. This is our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. So this week's exchange is with Richard Russell, the head of XL Recordings. The story of Russell and XL is particularly interesting because there are really very few labels like XL out there. It's managed to retain the spirit and integrity of an independent label while offering its artists the resources of a major label. And really, which other label can you think of that would release artists like Powell and Adele in the same year? In addition to Excel, we talked a lot about Everything Is Recorded, Russell's own recording project, which takes a highly collaborative approach to making music. Russell had been producing for artists like Gil Scott Heron and Damon Alburn, but a recent life-changing experience wound up focusing his attention on his long-held creative ambitions. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with Richard Russell is up next. Of these words I've tried to recite They are close but not quite Almost impossible to do Reciting the makings of you Okay, so I wanted to uh, start by talking about everything is recorded and the years leading up to the project. Am I right in saying that you'd been telling yourself for maybe many years that you wanted to get back in the studio as a as a recording artist? Well, I'd been back in the studio for for quite a number of years, starting with the Girl Scott Heron record. So not as an artist, but as a producer. But yeah, so there, I suppose there there were two distinct phases for me. First phase was the rave era of quite quick fire, quite DIY tune making when no one really we didn't really use the word artist then i think it would have been thought of as a bit pretentious really like an artist was someone who had a berry and painted pictures when we used to make tunes very unconsidered it was the whole approach you know which obviously I, you don't know that at the time but now i realize that's, that's a lovely way to make anything is to not really put any thought or any theory into it 
we were just making things to DJ with. And that was that phase. I ran out of steam a bit though, because I didn't really have any kind of artistic sort of vision or direction for the whole thing. So I think when the initial energy of making things to DJ with ran out and I was busy with the label, I kind of just faded out a bit of doing that. So I think when I went back to recording, which was to make I'm New Here with Girl Scott Heron, which came out in 2010, but I started working on in 2006. Yeah, I was more experienced. I had a bit more sort of depth of experience and probably my approach was like probably the opposite in some ways of like, I was going into things with quite a lot of thought and theory and sort of awareness of like context and threads and and then things like that, whilst also still trying to be in the studio and have fun and be free. So that was 2000, that record coming out in 2010 was the start of this phase. The Gil Scott Heron album, an album I did with Bobby Womack, which I co-produced with Damon Albarn. Uh, Damon Albarn's solo album, two albums with Ibey, an album we made in the Kinshasa for Warp called DLC Music. So all that led to this. How did you go about establishing what you were about? When I started working with Liam Howlett, we were both doing very similar things, really, of like making tunes and DJing and loving hip hop, but making rave. A little bit of a marriage of convenience, rave was in some ways for a lot of people. I think we really all were like frustrated b-boys, but no one was interested in our hip hop records at that time. You know, no one was really that interested in British hip hop records at that time, which is one of the things that makes now exciting because people are interested in that. And that was, that's been a long, long time coming. So I, but I kind of, one of the reasons I think I faded out of producing in the first place was because Liam was so good. And I think I slightly misinterpreted that. And I kind of thought, well, he's so much better than me at doing this. I should stop doing it. Which, of course, you know, there's always someone who's the best in any field. And what you're meant to do is get inspired by them. But I don't think I had the sort of experience or the confidence to really. Because otherwise, you know, once you had prints, everyone would stop. Which wouldn't be, you know, which wouldn't yeah, make if you any, follow that logic. First. Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't make any sense at all. So I think I sort of misinterpreted that. And also because the two other people who I was at the label with both left. And it really was just me. And Prodigy were kind of taking off. So I kind of thought, oh, right, I'm like running what's, you know, I'm running a record label and this. And also I realised they had the potential to be a big artist and I wanted them to be a big artist. And I sort of, I think I did have a bit of a like notion of like, right, when it's like we're taking Rave to America now. I'm not really sure why, but that just seemed like the thing that we were meant to be doing at that point. And with whatever that was going to entail, we were going to do that. And we did do that. So funnily, it was Liam who got me back into recording because he rung me at a point which I think must have been about 2002 maybe and said, have you got a laptop and have you got reason? Propellerhead reason. Because you'll really like it. This is very you, this software. You should try it. And, and he was right. And I got really into reason on a laptop and a pair of headphones and I just made loads and loads of what was was basically sort of grime it was kind of a sort of sort of DIY it was that sort of tempo and that sort of feeling and just beats grimy kind of beats loads and loads of stuff I never played to anyone um in that time and that was sort of what I was doing it was quite therapeutic as well and I used to really enjoy it got really into reason uh and I got logic I actually went on a course funnily enough I went on like a university course like a, a sort of programming course and it got a bit awkward when I told people there what else I did because people 
because they were like, what are you talking about? Why are you here? And I was like, well, because I want to learn how to do this. But actually people were a bit funny about it. But that was very, but it was very useful that. So it was like a weekend kind of course. Um, so I think it was like, a, it was just like a bit of a fresh start. And then at some point in all of that, I had this notion, I want to make a record with Girl Scott Heron. And I want there to be a new Girl Scott Heron record. I want to hear a new Girl Scott Heron record. Kanye had just sampled him on that track, My Way Home with Common. And I thought, I want to hear a whole record by him. I bet he's got a whole record to make. And I kind of, th I knew that would be a bit fraught and a bit tricky. And I thought, well, I should do it. It's not something to try and get someone else to do. I should do it. So I set about doing that. And I think I was sort of like laptop in hand. And that made, made me think, well, okay, between like having like, I'm, I was happy to go and talk to Gil and ask him things and play him music and sort of work with him as a person and an artist because I have experience of doing that. Um, but, I also, but, but, but actually having a laptop and knowing how to use it to record music and make music, I kind of felt, which I hadn't had a few years before that, I thought, oh, okay, well, I can just, I can do this. I'm ready for this. So actually the kind of reason laptop and then logic thing, and then the idea of working with girl, it was suddenly all, well, there was like a point to it all. You made the record with reason. No, um, no, what actually happened was then once I started listening to stuff with Gil, we listened to other people's music initially. That's what we did. We listened to other things. I used to play him things. He used to play me things. And then once once it was established we were going to make a record, I thought, well, sort of out of deference to him in a way, I thought we should actually go in a big studio rather than it be kind of DIY. And um, So we started off in Looking Glass, which is Philip Glass's studio in New York. And actually between visits to New York, between recording sessions, it closed. This was that era when all the studios were closing. And then we moved to Clinton in Hell's Kitchen, which had the biggest live room in New York at that time. Um, and that also closed. So the, the doors were shutting behind us everywhere while we were doing that record. But, but basically what I was doing, I was tracking Gil in the studio, though just vocals and piano in these big rooms. Uh, and then I was bringing that stuff home because now, by now I had a studio in my house and I was then putting the stuff into Logic um, and I was making stuff around his vocals in Logic and I was also just making stuff to play to him, some bits of which he chose to then, for us to then use to, to make things with. And we had this word that I've used this word Spartan quite early on with him, which he really liked. He was really into the word Spartan. And that was like, you know, you can get quite a long way with one word, with a record. Sometimes that will give you like everything you need as the sort of rules. And that, that was the rules, was Spartan. So if I came back to the studio with stuff I'd been working on and there was too much in it, he'd say, what about Spartan? And then I'd kind of strip stuff away. It's kind of really helpful. It was a guiding principle, right? Very helpful. And he actually, uh, he A&R'd me very well in that way, you know, because that's often all you need is someone saying too much. And then you kind of stop them. You know, being minimal takes quite a lot of confidence. I mean, how was working with him on a personal level? It was incredible. Life-changing, I think. Definitely. I mean, it was full of sort of cosmic kind of incidents, the whole thing. Just the whole kind of turning up and him being up for doing it. Sort of like he'd been expecting me. It's kind of what he said. Him saying, you know, he did an interview just after the record came out saying this record is Richard's dream and you don't just appear in your own dreams you appear in other people's dreams and this is me appearing in his dream 
which was quite sort of thought, yeah, quite thought provoking and kind of mystical. And, you know, he was, I mean, I think everyone who was involved in it had experiences with him, which were quite deep because every word was quite deep with him. Um, and I mean, if there was any, any hint of any dishonesty from anyone who was around, he would like seize on that very quickly, which I think had quite a useful effect on everyone. In, in what sort of sense? Well, I just think if anyone said anything which sounded in any way like bullshit, he'd call them just, on it. They'd just call them straight, yeah. Yeah, straight away. So I think everyone who wanted to work with him got into the habit of like being quite direct and saying things and quite a, making sure it was sort of straightforward because otherwise he'd, he just wasn't up for any bullshit. So, yeah, he was like... And also being in the studio, he was very sort of encouraging of me doing that because I've been doing all that, the label stuff for the last few years. And he said... He said, you know what, is this what you're, you know, why, why don't you just do this? Is this what you're doing now? You should, do, you should be doing this. And I said, I think it, I think it probably is. And he said, yeah, you should be doing this. You know, this is a demotion, right? I mean, he was half joking, but to his mind, it's like the boss of the record label is like the boss. Mm. And like the producers and the artists are like second job. So I didn't see it like that. And I didn't see it as anyway a demotion. But I like that idea. And I think that was slightly, he was slightly testing me as well. Because obviously, if you choose to make records... Which I, which I did at that point choose to do. You, you know, you can only do one at a time and they're time consuming. And this one I've been doing recently is very time consuming. Uh, it's taken a very long time. Whereas when you're doing a record label, you know, there's lots of stuff you can, that can be going on at any one time. So, you know, I did have to, I had to sort of recommit to process to do that. But that's what I wanted to do at that time. That's what I have done. So this record was almost the starting point for where you've eventually ended up with this new album. I mean, would that kind of be a fair characterization? Absolutely. It? Yeah. Absolutely. I think I think this record, because I, I went a long way out of my way to make I'm New Here with Gil. And the records that have followed have, in terms of the records I've produced, have, have occurred. They've just happened very naturally and very easily. And this one's just occurred and just happened as well. But this one's taken a long time to do. It took a long time to work out actually what it was. It took a long time to work out I was even making a record because initially I was just doing these sessions up here and we hadn't really decided what they were for. I just thought here is a time and an opportunity to, and I've been doing a lot of this Africa Express gigs and travel with Damon. You know, we did the record in Kinshasa, but we also went to Ethiopia and we'd done a bunch of different festival things. And so I got quite immersed in that improvisational um style which i really loved i mean everyone who does that loves it musicians who do that love that you don't it must be get, really liberating it's really liberating especially if you come from an electronic kind of background to do to do things in that way but with other people in the room and it's very like that atmosphere is very open and people are very encouraging of each other and i think everyone thinks people are going to be tough on each other but of course they're not in that environment because the whole spirit of is the spirit of is of it is mistakes are meant to be made and they can really lead to good things. You just got to be willing to have that vulnerability to make those mistakes and let other people see that. And, you know, when we went to Ethiopia, there was, you know, it was such a, it was a great, you know, great. I mean, firstly, Damon is a great musician to be around because he has a good spirit of um, sort of unfettered music making, you know, un, un sort of, he's not tethered to anything. He's just into music making. Him, Nick Zinner from the Year Years, and Flea from the Chili Peppers. So you had people of that caliber, but also Kano came to Ethiopia and Bashi, 
um, bullion. So we had a real like very interesting mix that you wouldn't have got. And also being in Ethiopia, which is this completely mind blowing, very beautiful place, very beautiful culture um, and very mind expanding. And we, we were learning out there, we were studying with people. So you had this very sort of, you know, a musical culture with different uh, different scales and you know, so a lot of stuff that you were trying to sort of process um, and we were traveling around. And I think everyone was having quite, I mean, it's what people used to use hallucinogenics for. I think in music in the sixties, you know, you some device to like get you to see things differently and open your mind to things. I think is what those trips were. So when I built this studio, I kind of thought, oh, I can invite people over and we can play, like I was doing on those Africa Express things, and that's great. So and I did that quite randomly. I just would text. We we had these. We used to have sessions on Friday night here, and I would just text people on the Thursday and see see what happened and see who was here. So you can you could you got a bit of a mix but very heavily influenced by the africa express experience so i'm definitely very grateful to damon for bringing me into that so we just set up and go for it yeah 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 we didn't have a we didn't have a drum kit like that um so really the only acoustic instrument was the piano you know we tried to keep the instruments kind of somewhat unorthodox but people you know people got interesting sounds out of out of everything and then I think after a while, I started to realise, oh, what I've maybe been doing here is kind of making, like creating a sort of random environment so that some un un unintended noises got made that were then going to be samples that I could use. And did you wind up using much yeah, of yeah. that material? Yeah. 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 So that, that, that informed the rest of the recording and was used for the rest of the recording quite a lot, which obviously at a certain point, I started seeing it as more of a record and had a bit more of an idea about what I wanted it to be. So then there was something more to kind of aim for. There was this, you know, there was like a mess making phase and then there was like a sort of tidying phase. Yeah. Putting it back together almost. Um, I also understand that um, kind of a, an important part of the story leading up to this was the illness you suffered, which was within the last couple of years or? 2013. 2013. Could, mm. you, could you tell us just about what happened? And yeah, I would... I, I took my four-year-old daughter to see uh, Matilda in the West End and I started feeling very strange while I was there. But then, you know, you do feel strange sometimes. So I think you kind of learn like, well, you know, something Damon always used to say about hangovers. You know, people get really like hung up on their hangovers, but like, you're meant to feel a bit funny. That's all it is, feeling a bit funny. You know, don't worry about it too much. You've been up all night, you feel a bit funny. I got home and I went to bed and then when I woke up and I started talking... And um, no one around me could understand what I was saying. And everything was jumbled. And uh, my partner called the uh, called an ambulance because she, she sort of recognised there was something sort of neurologically remiss about that. And they admitted me to Queen's Square Hospital. Yeah, so I got the... I basically, I had a neurological condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome. It's a bit like getting hit by a bus. It's very... Comes out of nowhere. You're... Um, nervous system shuts down your immune system and everything stops working. So gradually, well, gradually, like over a period of about a week, everything stops. So I had a full body paralysis. Yeah, and there I was. There I was. And actually that, the dramatic phase of it, which was, you know, definitely dramatic for people around me, and it was actually quite, um, it was actually quite serene, that bit, because I was completely surrendered to it and I was totally had no control over anything that was going on. And I knew that. So it was 
quite um i've spoken to other people who've been in a situation like this like the idea of it if you knew it was going to happen you wouldn't be able to handle that but the experience of it is actually quite easy to handle because there's absolutely nothing you can did do. Did you have full um, like brain function capacity? Uh, well, I, I had I had a type of cognition during that phase, and you know, then the next phase of it was was sort of trying to recover and, and then starting to recover movement bit by bit, and that was that was tougher really because then it was like I had more of an awareness that I had to struggle. I mean, but the the period before that, I had surrendered myself to whatever it was, and I was also having some very interesting kind of experiences in terms of getting a bit of a review of everything that had gone before and it was kind of amazing um it was like a dream really but then the next bit of it was more like okay right i'm back in reality i'm in this bed i can't move anything and you know i can't take a shit and i can't do anything and i've got all these tubes in me but you know then then the thing that happens is you start to get things start to come back you know so i've got movement in my face and i kind of felt like then i was starting to get like bits of good news and I was really into the good news it was like there was like each one each bit was like a sort of cause for celebration so I would be really buzzing about each of these things that was happening leading up to the point where you were able to get in a wheelchair and, and get out of the hospital which is after a few weeks and that seeing outside when you've been in a hospital for a few weeks without going outside is amazing Has so, the doctors told you that that's what the arc of your recovery would be i mean did they have any surety over it well i think there was like pessimism for like i think it was i think it was a couple of weeks of real pessimism and then a bit of sort of uh a bit of optimism started to creep in and also because you know i was in the stroke ward and a lot of the people in there weren't really going to be recovering from what they had and it was inc looking increasingly likely that i was so when i was i was having a bit of a whinge one day one of my best friends was there, one of the other guys who used to do the housequake with me and Leo. And he said, you know, you can whinge if you want, but I'll, I'll wheel you around this ward and most of the people here aren't getting better. So, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't be looking at anything that's going on as bad if I was you because you, you're probably going to walk out of here at some point. And a lot of people aren't. And that was, uh, yeah, no, that, hit, that definitely hit home. So yeah, so then when I got out there, it was like a lot of physio and kind of just learning to do stuff again, kind of building back up to being able to, and actually we'd started building this studio when I got sick. So I'd never used this before I got sick. And then as I got better, um, and John carried on building it with a team of other people. And when I got better, here it was. So you came home to, to yeah. this? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, yeah, that's really incredible. Yeah, it really was. So it was like, right. And it really felt like a kind of new day, you know, day one. Did you want to inject any of those experiences into the album? Was that something you wanted to make a direct connection between? I don't think I realised that at first. I mean, I, now I see I wasn't making something like this before I got ill. I was making something like this after I got ill. These things are obviously connected and there are definitely themes. I mean, it's not a record about illness in any way, but there's definitely it definitely touches on the things that I was considering during that phase. And, you know, one of the, th the, the strong themes of the record is that it's about, it's about every single moment, really. It's about the importance of every single moment. Did you at all find it challenging to um, figure out how you wanted to present yourself as a, well, solo artists, essentially. I mean, it feels to me like there's a... Like no one really does anything for the first time, like, in music. 
So we can look at like the real, like the really most pioneering people who've done things that felt incredibly fresh and broke ground. They were still leaning on things that have been done before. Bowie, I think, changed a lot of stuff for people forever. And I think Bowie opened doors for people forever. But he was still leaning on things. Obviously, he was influenced by a whole heap of different things. Grace Jones, I think, changed things for people forever. But everyone's leaning on stuff. I suppose what what I'm getting at is in terms of like, if you want to make a record like this, which is I'm basically, I'm a producer, I'm not a vocalist. I'm working with different vocalists. I'm working with different musicians. There, I feel like there are certain archetypes almost and ways it can be done. And if you want to call yourself something like everything is recorded, which is a bit, a bit oblique, a bit obtuse. But of course, plenty of people have done that, for, I suppose, from, I don't know, from the war on drugs to the streets to nightmares on works. I mean, those are all one person. Uh, so I kind of feel like there's a bit of a tradition of, and then you say, okay, well, why does someone? Now, because the streets is a bit of an exception to this because Mike Skinner is more of a traditional star. So that was more of a kind of, that was quite an unusual choice. But I think generally people will come up with a name like that because they don't want to be a uh, sort of traditional front person because that's not who they are. You know, it wouldn't be me to be that or to do that. Um, so I think that's why you kind was of... It, was it sort of a nod to the fact that the record was going to be highly collaborative also? You know, in in a sense, there were more than one person. Yeah. I also think it's like, it's a sort of, it's a bit of a cultural tradition, isn't it? I mean, in the type of musical scenes that I've come from, it's very unusual for anyone to use their own name. Do you know what I mean? I mean, Burial, we, we want to hear Burial, but it's Burial. You, you know what I mean? Like, there just tends to, I think there tends to be a, an artist name, a project name, a, uh, a pseudonym, whatever you want to call it. So yeah, that was just, that was a phrase that that meant a lot to me. I had been sitting around for a long time for me since the kind of hospital phase and something that I kind of sort of naturally, I mean, everyone's got a different interpretation and people have said all sorts of things to me about what they think it means. And I actually have thought, well, they, they all, all sound valid, all those interpretations. So I think with these things, there isn't any one specific meaning to it. But I think, you know, a name like Everything Is Recorded is like, it's maybe a bit puzzling at first for people and it's not very direct. And I think that almost means that that affects the pace at which things develop. And I quite like that. Mm. Did you know what I mean? It's less, it, it, it's a little indirect, I suppose. It's funny because when you were talking about um, even the fact that the pioneers were influenced by someone that was in the exact realm that my interpretation sat of what the name meant, essentially. That everybody was influenced by something, you know, everything in some ways is a remix of a remix of a remix. That's kind of that's where I personally landed with it. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's very that's appropriate because the record is, you know, it's got a lot of layers in terms of things with sampling and things we're referencing and things that have influenced it and the people who are on it and what they represent to me and the people who we sampled and what they represent and those yeah, those threads and those archetypes. On the subject of sampling, um, I was just wondering, uh, there's obviously a very prominent and well-deployed Curtis Mayfield sample on the record. Um, and I was just wondering, in taking a sample kind of of that magnitude on, do you almost feel like a, a weight of responsibility to like do it justice, as it were? I was actually thinking it's like luxury goods. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, 
<laughs> you've got to be able to afford a Curtis Mayfield. <laughs> you know what? Sure. Actually, they were they were so reasonable about it. I mean, it's funny with samples, isn't it? Because they they have sort of. No, I had thought about them as a luxury good because a lot of people stay away from samples now, and I think one of the reasons is people think it's expensive, and it's a pain in the ass, and there is an element of using samples which is tricky like you use a sample you get emotionally attached to the piece of music you've made you know if samples are your thing then it's just like something you've played on the guitar or something you've sung it's your voice and if you get to the point of actually you know we're playing around with loads of things in here but if you get to the point of trying to clear it by that time you're, you're yeah, quite you attached formed a relationship with it yeah. and at that point of course what you realize is oh i've been collaborating with someone who know, knew nothing about it and they could very easily say no They'd be well within their rights to say no. And at that point, the whole thing falls apart. So it's quite hairy, the use of samples. I never really thought about it in that way before. And it made me have a lot more sympathy with people who don't use them. Because it's just, it's, it's a high wire act to use samples. But that notwithstanding, I love samples. It's a massive part of my musical sort of uh, brain and influences. And, you know, I grew up on 80s hip-hop records. They were all samples. Everything was a sample in those records. There was virtually no music getting played. I suppose there was the old keyboard part, but um, James Brown samples and Parliament and all the many, many 70s soul things and the old, you know, Kraut thing and, you know, and Bambata sampling craft work. Because obviously this was, I'm starting as a DJ as well. This was... That's my culture, really. I think if that's your culture, you don't feel a... I didn't feel any any pressure in using a Curtis Mayfield sample because I think I feel like I know how to use a sample. That's part of how I work. I suppose if you were like a pop artist and you started using samples like that, you'd probably want to be a bit careful about it mm. because you could end up... It's just like a cultural grab or yeah, something. Yeah, and it can end up, you can end up getting that a bit wrong. You know, I was that Curtis Mayfield sample was... It was a very, it was very specific that in that I listened to Sanford's that piano song, it's an incredible song, and that lyric where he says, he says, "No one knows me like the piano in my mother's home." You have shown me I have something some people call a soul. It's it's beautiful, but it did make me think of that Curtis Mayfield thing. These words I'm trying to recite, they're close but not quite. It's like he's kind of like. He Sanfer, you know, he's not. He, that's why he. You love him so much. He's not slick, Sanfer, and it's not expressed in a slick way. It's not perfect, and it made me think of that Curtis line. And I actually came back here having listened to that. I listened to the Sanfer, um, that song, in Brilliant Corners in East London. And I came back here, and I made the, and I chopped the sample up and played the beat on the SPs, and I knew there was something there. It just sounded right. And then played it to Sanford, who I'd never done any music with at that point, just to see if it said anything to him, thinking maybe if he likes it, he can take it away and write something. And he just wrote in the room, he improvised over it, and that's what became the record. You know, I, I had a hunch, I had a hunch that, that that sample would mean something to him. It's only a hunch, you never know with anything like that, you know, it meant something to me. I had a hunch it would mean something to him. So you try it, you know. It's like with trying anything in the studio, though, it's like, Anything you play, anything you try, it's all you're just going with your instincts, aren't you? Don't, you know, that's the thing. I think people don't realize that when they hear a incredibly great piece of music or you know a, a great song that's lasted for decades, you, you, I think people almost think the people knew they were doing that. I and mean, you don't know you're doing that when you're doing that. You're just messing about most of the time, 
and you know it's why you turn you have to turn up in the studio and work you don't know what's going to happen you know nothing for days but then on one day something will happen um and you capture something and there's a bit of inspiration there and that ends up resonating but you you can't really get too hung up on that uh, so just before we started recording um you were looking over the test presses for the record i was just wondering um like where are you at with your relationship with the records you know you're someone who's still finding faults you know still thinking that you should have done something differently or have you just been able to say okay this thing's done now i can almost feel john groaning in the background john's the engineer here how are we doing john have we have we come to terms with everything I mean, it's <laughs> as much as you can <laughs> it's, i mean it's been it's been a long process how do i feel about it now i don't know i don't know i, I mean it, i felt like there was definitely at a certain point there was something that to sort of that was going to manifest and it did so that's good um at a certain point with these things you've got to get out of the way and let it happen and then you have something that and you have no control over what that means to anyone else really you know uh, so tell us how your role at Excel has changed during the past couple of years. You know, I assume that, uh, yeah, the whole thing looks quite different. Yeah, not really the last couple of years, really, really since, since working with Gil, there was, there was, and it was fairly, um, it was a fairly dramatic change. I think at that point that I was ready for and that everyone was ready for in that there's a, there was a team of people in place by then, um, and I'd put a lot of energy and love and time into building something and it was built. You know, if you want to look at it as like a, a building or a, you know, that kind of structure, there was something built by them where I felt really happy to be in the studio. Um, and I mean, obviously the thing with, a, with something like a record label is it's, you know, I never would see myself as it or it as me, it would be ridiculous. I mean, it's like something like a record label is so, I mean, everything is a collaboration anyway, even the things people think are just done by one person. Even like a book that someone writes is a collaboration. Nothing's ever one person, but let alone something like a record label. There's a whole bunch of people doing different things. I think also that thing of like people thinking something is one per, you know, it's like a, a film by Martin Scorsese. It's like, that's not by Martin, that's by 350 yes. people. Um, and he's and he'd be the first to say that. So I don't think I ever saw it as me and, but I was able to contribute something to it and still am able to contribute something to it. It wouldn't have done the things that it's done if it was that. It's a, you know, it's collab collaborative venture, all the artists, all the staff, all the people who, who do things. So I think yeah, there was a point where I was just ready to say, right, I'm in the studio. That's what I'm doing. And um, I think everyone was fine with that. Could you tell us a little bit about those staff, you know, but just you know, how the company's set up, you know, what's your A&R process, you know, how are things running these days? Yeah. Well, it's run by a guy called Ben Beersworth. So I think that was, that's kind of a key thing is like, again, it's never about one person, but you do need someone who's like the kind of, I suppose, a leader of types. And Ben, Ben's very sort of patient, but Ben had a proper hippie upbringing. He's, he's very patient. The key thing is the Exile doesn't put many records out. And I think there was one point where it started to get to the age of putting out too many records. And that was probably the final thing I did was pull that right back and and have this realization that that's the one thing that will fuck it up is putting out too much stuff. And as long as it puts out a small amount of stuff, as long as that discipline is there, there's that rigorous discipline of like, there's not gonna be much stuff coming out, that kind of holds it together. 
because then you know that that ensures quality control it doesn't ensure that every record is something people like it doesn't ensure that every record is something that anyone buys it just means there is a discipline there about what comes out and that that struck me as the most important thing and it also means that everything that comes out people concentrate on it because there's time to do that and this is just not what businesses normally do when they get successful they do the opposite they take on loads of stuff people think we could do well with that we could do well with that we could do that they do it all and then it becomes a uh, like a shadow of what it was and actually i think it's i think it's better than it's ever been now because it's got a small amount of things and they're all you know and they're all interesting so this year there'll have been a a King Cool record, an Arca record, and you know, in a Bay record, it's all a Nines record. It's all really, to me. That's all really interesting, um, and kind of uh, what it should be doing. I simultaneously think that record labels aren't necessary anymore because they're clearly not. Because you can do everything yourself now, um, and I think they've got a really important function and role to play if they're any good. I mean, if I was to hazard a guess as to what you mean there, um, I think the simple case of filtration, basically, of curation and filtration and people or building relationships with people and gaining people's trust, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think anything that's like, anything like that, a record label, uh, what you guys do, a club, it just depends what the motivations are, doesn't it? I think people can see very, or a DJ or anything, you know what I mean? I think people can see very clearly. I mean, I always, I, I have great faith in people in this way. I think people can see what's what. People can tell when the, the motivations behind why people do things. So if, that, if something is done, you know, I, I mean, I only, I only do labours of love. I don't think there's anything else that, like, they're all passion projects. Everything's a passion project. Everything's a labour of love because that's how, that's how I am. And I don't think I could do, and I think if I do do things in a more calculated way than that, it wouldn't work. And I just, because I'm emotional as a person. So I think you've just got to know that about yourself. Because I think some people can be very sort of calculated. That's like what the business world is like. People are calculated about things, do things in a calculated way. And like they get their calculations right and they succeed. But I think most people in music, you know, that's not the artistic sensibility. Artistic sensibility is instinct. And then you do it and, you know, sometimes that resonates and sometimes that doesn't resonate and you've got to, you know, and it's it's probably fair to say it's more fun when things do resonate and less fun when things don't resonate. But you've got to be, you've got to be up for any of that and just mm. you kind of roll on and make something else. Okay, so if the label, say, for example, puts out um, six records, um, you maybe will you know, form a long-term relationship with an artist where you continue releasing their music. How much strain does that put on the A&R process? Because obviously the barrier the barrier to entry, if you want to put it that way, is incredibly high. So I'm just wondering, like, what does that process look like? Well, it's incredibly varying. I mean, I think that's always been a strength of the label, that there isn't a set way of doing things. And so if you look at the history of the artists, they're all so different and they've all got such different methods of going about things and there's my studio here there's another studio at the label and there's also a, a studio in new york now a really good studio in new york so there's there's the and all these studios have full-time engineers so there's really good studios for people to work in if they need those facilities as well as you know those other 
sort of functions that a label would need to perform. But some artists are just going to, you know, make a record, finish it, mix it, and turn up with it. And that's that. So that that's one, I suppose that would be one extreme. And I guess the other extreme would be like, you know, like when I was making the record with Girl Scott Heron, where we're doing the whole thing from scratch and working out what it is together. And in some circumstances, you're doing that. So it's yeah, it's hard, it's hard to give you it's hard to give you a specific answer on that because it's completely it's completely varied, and differs massively from artist to artist. I mean, as an artist, you've got to have someone you've got to have someone you listen to. You've got to have someone who you might allow to edit you, and I think that can be absolutely anyone, as long as they're a trusted ear for you, and that can be your manager, could be your producer could be record label A&R. It's not normally these days though. But I think it's important for artists to be aware of that though, because again, it comes back to this thing of like, nothing is achieved alone. And sometimes it looks like things are achieved alone by people, but it's always, I think it's much more, that's, you know, you, you don't want to feel lonely when you're doing stuff. You need to have that kind of team. So I th do think it's a very, it's very important to have someone who's, who's a trusted ear as a musician, it's also important not to have a whole load of people who are giving you conflicting uh, feedback because I think that can get that can get easily confusing. Mm. I mean, is there some sort of um, philosophy that you feel like you've passed on to staff at the label for the ways in which they should, you know, just deal with artists, you know, and how they should sort of interact with them and you know manage them? Not so much a philosophy, but a spirit, maybe. Yeah, which is about artistry and not ego. I guess, and sort of, I don't know, like avoiding like the traditional uh, sort of cliched label artist issues, which are, I think are mostly quite avoidable. It's like, it's like when you're doing any, any endeavor, you, you, everyone's got to be, everyone's got, if you've got a really good team of people around you as an artist and everyone communicates, just more happens, mm. you know? So you just have to have that kind of openness and understanding with all the different people on the team. And as an artist, you've got to have a team. You can do it without a label these days, but you need people doing stuff. So whatever form, you know, I mean, I guess in terms of advice to artists, I always feel like when people, you know, do people need a label? I'm like, you just need a team. I won't worry too much about what they're called, what their job title is, because actually, you know, they might, they might need to end up becoming a record label anyway. Yeah. If you see what I mean, because those functions are sort of quite, they're, they're, they are what they are, but you just need to have people around you who can help you, you know, execute and facilitate stuff because, there is a lot of stuff that can easily distract you from artistry and making records. Look what happened to me. I ended up running a record label. Mm, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wasn't making and then I wasn't making any music. And that worked out fine. But you know, I could, I've definitely I've I've like experienced that and it's very easy to land up like not being as focused on music as you as you might want to be if other stuff's going on. I guess in many people's minds, they uh, when they think about Excel, um, you know, they obviously see it as an independent label, but there are aspects of the label that more resemble a major in that you're able to be very ambitious. You know, artists are able to, you know, realise what they're dreaming about, essentially. I'm just wondering, like, what's the what's the roots of this? How have you managed to achieve this, like, you know, hallowed middle ground? Well, that because that was the idea. Not at first, because it wouldn't have been realistic. I mean, at first it was a rave label and it didn't contain different approaches. It was a straightforward approach initially of being a rave label and putting out records for DJs. It did that very well. And that was very straightforward and, you know, 
we we just put out the records that were that we were playing in our DJ sets. It was very very straightforward, and that's obviously a great sort of cultural thing. Being a D, you know being a DJ producer doing a label that's something that lasts to this day, and it works. But I think it's very effective that all those things feed off each other. But I think there was a point where I thought, well, as an artist, what you really want is you want the you want the understanding and the integrity that independent labels have. The type of artist I like, you want that. But you also want the ambition and drive that majors have. And there was definitely a point where I thought, okay, well, that's it. That's what we've got to do, is combine those things. There wasn't anything very original there. It was more like an idea that was an amalgam of two completely obvious existing things that I think over a period of time the label did have, did eventually become that. And then I think it also then started to hark back to a time before the landscape was like it is anyway, because like Island Records as an indie had a great deal of clout and great taste. And I worked in the warehouse there when I was a teenager and I've, I definitely witnessed that. And like, I think at first with Excel, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't really dare, I wouldn't have dared to kind of dream that that was possible. But at a certain point, I thought, oh no, that is possible. That's like Ireland as an independent, A&M as an independent. You know, they've always been those, you know, Motown, they've always been those labels that were independent and had a great deal of impact. You know, it could be argued it's more possible than ever now, of course, with all the headaches of, or a lot of the headaches of manufacturing and worldwide distribution taken out or, or simplified. It could be argued that that is, that's easier than ever, if you can be bothered. <laughs> yeah, sure. There's a lot has to go into it. Yeah, sure. I was just interested in that, I guess it was probably a few years ago now, the label seemed to make a you know, quite visible um, reconnection with what you were describing before, you know, this 12-inch label, you know, very DJ-orientated. I was wondering what um, sort of spurred that, more inspired that move. Mm. Well, I think as the label got got better and better at making albums and working with a certain type of artist who had a long-term vision for things, which was like the opposite of Kicks Like a Mule or SL2, not to say anything bad about Kicks Like a Mule or SL2, but that wasn't a long-term vision. You know, they didn't make albums, those artists made tunes. So I think as like, as the label then gradually worked its way across the spectrum to the total other extreme of very, very long-term focused artist album type things it did strike me i kind of missed that other thing mm. so i did i kind of tossed the idea in like why don't we just do one off single like dance singles again mm. i mean we putting out any dance music i think there was point. a period there was a i think there's always there's always been dance music going on and also one thing you know we did that locked on label which was all the garage singles. Yeah, of course. Which was very powerful, you know, really great. Like, And also music that I think ended up having quite a lasting kind of impact. That was a guy called Nick Worthington, who was another guy who I'd known from when I was at school. We actually used to do clubs together as well when I was when I was when we were teenagers. And he had the shop Pure Groove, which used to be in Archway, and Lockton was run out of the shop. There were a lot of great tunes on there. So there was, I think, and then of course, XL was doing dance music and electronic music, which was became more artist albumy, basement jacks, and different things where they managed to kind of crack that code of like making dance orientated music that was more where they were 
albums as well. But no, really, it was just a kind of at some point of realization. Like, well, well, who's you know who said we can't just do one-offs with people? Let's just, just do one-offs. They're really fun. They're quick fire for the people who are doing them with. It's great because they just get to make a tune, get it out with a bit more push behind it. Um, and I think for the label, it's quite quite enjoyable to do that. You know, I think to have both to have both approaches makes a lot of sense. I mean, do you see um, something of the the spirit or the tone of the early days of Excel that's kind of carried through into the present day? Yeah, I think it's I think it's the same, really. It's just about the it's about the reason for doing things, isn't it? You know, that goes back to that thing we were talking about about intentions and what are the reasons for doing something. That comes down to music and excitement and something that you can feel. And I think that's like you know you can feel the excitement in the records the label puts out, right? And that was always that was always the case, I think. Okay, um, we'd, we'd already touched on uh, The Prodigy a little bit, but um, they were obviously a really, really key signing for the label in the early days. And, you know, you're talking about cracking, um, cracking America or bringing rave to America and, you know, things of that nature. Um, would you say that in a way uh, The Prodigy provided something of a blueprint for the artists that you would later sign on Excel and that, you know, you've got a group who... Are, fairly individualistic and you know really know what they're about and you know you've since signed lots of artists who would be described that way and i wonder if that was like you know that signing was like a turning point yeah liam was definitely a blue you know he was he was a blueprint he had a blueprint and he also had a i had you know i had a hunch that it was possible to do whatever you wanted but he definitely was he was the proof of it i kind of felt like he was so or is actually so sort of uh, free in what he did, unrestricted in what he did, and no interest in what anyone thought he should do. He was just doing what he wanted to do and making it work. And I, th and I think when I saw that, I was like, okay, right, great. That confirms that that is possible, um, and that's how it's got to be. Because there's, you know, the record industry is probably like any other industry. It's full of people saying, well, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. This is the rule for this. This is the rule for that. And it's all bollocks. You don't have to do any of it. You just have to do things well enough that you can kind of carve out your own path with it. And the the sort of, you know, the realisation that what you don't do is just as important as what you do. So, you know, they never wanted to play on TV. You don't play on TV. And that takes confidence because obviously some artists are going to think, oh, if I don't go on TV, then less people are going to hear me. But his feeling was that would have diluted the strength of who they were. So he never did that. And I think that made them, oh yeah, that made them all the more powerful. Mm, I mean, considering um, the artists or the, some of the key artists that the label signed over the years, do you, did you see the connections either in the, the personality type or the approach or do you, you know, do you, do you see commonalities? Oh yeah. 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 No, I mean, there's all the, the archetypes. I mean, there's only like, in some ways there's only so many, there's only so many, uh, models of anything you know there's only so many notes on the keyboard and there's only so many, i mean liam that that approach to doing things that uncompromising approach is my approach but i i feel like he was it ran through him so instinctively and deeply i really got something from that i think he was like he was more punk rock than I was, but I knew that was right. 
And I kind of knew to like go with that. But I think he really helped me see that. It's just a very useful outlook in music, isn't it? You can just stay out of so many, um, stay out of so many pitfalls, and there's so so much like bullshit you could get caught up in the whole time in music. Whereas if you've got that uncompromising approach of I'm going to make stuff, I'm going to make it good, I'm not going to do things that I think are bullshit, and I'm going to believe in what I do. Yeah, I just still think that I just think that that can work. And the sort of music industry or the rules of things, they you know just doesn't really doesn't really apply does it i suppose you know if you watch people going on x factor or something it's like straight away i mean they're just in a they're in a whole world of rules aren't they everything's there must be rules to absolutely everything about what they can and can't do and everything they're going to be doing i guess also that maybe that is that's one approach i suppose to being in entertainment but then you're not you know you don't get the stuff that we're here for you don't get from that and the stuff that changes things tends to come from people who are fiercely individualistic and would probably do anything to defend that. And that's the, uh, that kind of freedom is, that's what I'm into. When we, when we made that record with Bobby Womack, me and Damon, Bobby, I think had had a lot of like music industry type experiences that weren't great of like the sixties and the seventies in America being told you should be this, you should be that, you should make something more commercial, you should do this. And when we were in the studio with him, we we talk, he was talking about spirituals and spiritual songs. I don't know if we were exactly sure what he meant. And so he sung this song, Deep River, just him on an acoustic guitar, and it was this absolutely floored us with this performance. It was incredible. And we were rolling and we, we recorded it. And when he finished it, I mean, I knew exactly how Damon felt about it and I have, how I felt about it. And I said to him, well, that's, that's, that's a song. That's, that's a recording. That's, and he was like, really? That? I said, yeah, that's it. That's, and he's like, well, are you up for me doing stuff like that? I said, absolutely. Why wouldn't we be? And he said, well, is that commercial? And I said, well, according to who? He was like, so a minute, is, are you that free? He was aiming at both of us. Like, isn't there someone going to turn up in a suit in a minute and say, that's a problem. I said, no. And I thought, I am that free. I'd never really occurred to me before that I've managed to be, I mean, I think I've had quite a sort of charmed life in that regard. I've managed to be totally free of that, always, of anyone ever turning up and saying things like that, which a lot of people in their journey through music, you know, they come across that. I mean, I think I already know what the answer would be, but, you know, does commercial viability play anything of a role in what you guys do at Excel? Well, I definitely wouldn't not do something because it was commercially viable and I wouldn't do something because it was commercially viable. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I think that, that, and that is quite a specific, that is quite a specific approach, isn't it? Because it's non, it's, I don't know, it's sort of like depoliticizing commerciality in a way because it doesn't really matter because what you're talking about with commerciality is you're talking about what do people make of it? And that's like people one worrying about what other people think of them. You're never going to get anywhere doing that. Sure. Do you think that um, for you know, maybe uh, several of the artists on Excel, um, it almost helps them deal with the, you know, some of the more like negative aspects of fame in that they've got people around them who are still rooted in the creative process and, you know, they're able to be anchored within that sort of environment, you know, where they're not just floating off into, you know, a, 
a major label, you know, bubble with, you know, sales and figures and stuff. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think that is healthy, isn't it? I mean, I think there's always been a, there's been always been an aspect of like the kind of Hollywood style entertainment business where there's basically two modes of dealing with you, which is either you are not important, in which case no one returns your phone calls and you're kind of non-existent or you're like a superstar or someone who's going to make them a lot of money, in which case you're treated like a god. And it's like, these are the two modes. And neither of those really treat anyone like a human. And they're not healthy. So I think that kind of basic functionality of like, everyone's a human being, so you kind of treat everyone the same. That's just healthy, isn't it? And you can see why, because obviously if you get like, no one wants to be treated, no one wants to be treated as uh, more than human or less than human. It just doesn't make any sense, does it? But I do think there's always been a bit of a kind of tradition of that in a certain type of showbiz, you know, entertainment business kind of thing, which has always made me feel a bit sick. I mean, have you have you had to deal much with that aspect of things? I mean, you know, considering someone like Adele, for example, who's like quite literally one of the most famous people in the world, you know, is it... Do you? But she's a good example, though, isn't she, of someone who's like kept her sanity mm. through that. How has she managed to do that? Just by just by sort of seeing bullshit for what it is, I think, and not getting not getting caught up in in stuff, and just sort of knowing who she is. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, it it is possible, it is possible to do that. Um, you know, and having like having a manager who sort of is real and tells her the truth about things, and just having sort of realistic feedback about stuff. There's many. I mean, there's many many ways you can navigate everything, aren't there? And I suppose the like people who've struggled with fame, that's very well documented. And there would have been a whole load of people probably um, implicated in it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like the people around Michael Jackson, the stuff that was going on would have just been unimaginably mad for a long time, maybe for his whole life, that kind of led to where it is. And then I think there's people who have had a very sort of sane existence where they've made music and stayed excited by that and having a cup of tea. Mm. using the toilet i was i was really que uh, keen to just um touch quickly on adele and um you know we obviously established everybody knows just you know quite how successful she's been but um do you clearly remember the first time you saw her perform and do you remember what you felt around the corner at cherry uh, cherry jam which is on porch the road i'm not sure what that's called now it's very few clubs that have got the same identity as they had 10 or 15 years ago in london i was thinking this the other day it's like feels like there's been a complete sea change in venues. What you mean, somewhere where you could just go to see a singer? Or? Well, I mean, any type of club. Like, there's very few. Like, the buildings are what they. You know what I mean? Are the same thing as yeah, they were. Yeah, sure, sure. Like, even if the building's still like, obviously, that's not like the Astoria. Yes, not, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of things that are just that's gone. The structure's gone. But the Cherry Jam was on Porchard Road. That club Yo-Yo was there for a bit um, before they moved to Nottingham Arts Club, and um, that was the first time. I saw her there and um, yeah, I think what she had was always very, a very apparent, very evident. I think it was to a lot of people really a sort of presence and presence and confidence and like, like she knew what she was doing and she was going to do it kind of thing. Okay. Um, to finish up, I just wanted to ask a slightly more broader question about the, uh, about the record industry. I think in the last 10 years have seen, you know, some 
you know, unfathomably large changes. You know, there's a digital revolution, there's streaming and subscription models and um, all things of this manner. But I was just wondering in your view, if you felt like we're entering into a more settled period, you know, is this the model that the recording industry is going to be on for the foreseeable future? Or do you personally feel like there might be more changes in the in the near future? I mean, I'm not good. I'm not good at predicting the future in this way because I've always tried and ignore it mm. because I think it's a bit of a distraction from the bit of it that I know about. So you just mean to say that you kind of deal with things as they happen and, you know, adjust accordingly or? Well, I just, I, I deal with music. Sure. And all of that, all that really is is distribution. And I would imagine that that's been ever changing since the dawn of music from when you know music used to just be uh manuscripts right it was like sheet music that there was sheet music before there were recordings apparently when they started recordings people were like hold on we're going to be out of business if people can buy the recordings and they won't want to pay to hear us play it so apparently that was seen as quite a threat recorded music in itself was seen as a threat when it started but it is it's just distribution isn't it so there's always something going on it's funny actually my dad said something funny to me the other day which is he said you're because he he was sort of trying to get his head around streaming i think he's kind of got his head around it but he was saying you're still a young man but you've seen like so much change in what you do and i was thinking i don't really feel like i have i don't really feel like anything has changed because i feel like the bit of it that i'm interested in is like it's just that bit of music. Mm. And it's like, I don't know, it was a funny flashback to like being in my parents' house and hearing music when I was a teenager, hearing hip hop records when I was 15, 16. And like, it's just that feeling. And that's that's the bit. That's the important bit. That's that's the bit I'm into. And um, hopefully always will be. And so then if it was like, I had to get on a tube, go to go from Edgware to, what tube, what tube station I used to go to, but I used to get the Northern Line and get out in the West End and go to Greek Street and go to Groove and buy 12 inches buy, or buy a, buy a 12 inch because it was 6 quid for an import 12 inch I'd buy a, a 12 inch and then get back on the tube and then go back to it and then put the record on that's not the process you would go through now to hear a new bit of music so that's changed but the music you know what I mean you just go it's whether you're excited by the tune or not just like owners people acting like they own us it feels like no one knows us if you're growing up with no love Put your hands in the soil and you can grow love Life is up and down seesaw. 
got two 